there's been buzz about marketplaces in the IT channel. I'm not sure we all know how marketplaces work sometimes, particularly on the MSP and IT services space. And if you're gonna pull together vendors, distributors, solution providers, and customers into a marketplace, that's a full-way marketplace. So let's learn from somebody who built one, a consumer level one, pulling together three different parties. Let's talk to Brian Clayton on this bonus episode of The Business of Tech. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Brian, I'm excited to have you on. Thanks for joining me today. Dave, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Your story kind of fascinated me as somebody on the technology side that comes from that because you didn't come naturally to technology and actually are very much the sort of entrepreneur leader and in times the way we think about our customers that I wanted to talk about. Tell me about your your kind of pivot from landscaping to software. Yeah, it was not an easy one, but I started a, a landscaping business when I was a young kid in high school and and little by little grew that little lawn mowing business I had to uh, around 150 people and uh and it ended up getting acquired after about 10 or 15 years of growing that company. And after I sold that business, I took some time off and I thought, well, what am I going to do with my life now? And I thought, you know, the life of a tech entrepreneur seems like that would be fun. Maybe I could do that. And maybe I, maybe I could build a software product. Maybe I could build a marketplace. And, and I had this idea that an app should exist like Uber or Instacart or DoorDash, but for lawn care services. And so I thought, why can't I build that? And it was kind of naivete as an asset. I didn't really know what I didn't know. I didn't know the first thing about how to build software. I never tried to code up a web page or anything like that in my life. But didn't let that stop us. Uh, recruited two co-founders, and and we uh, we started working on the idea for an app that will work like Uber, but for lawn mowing services. And we called it GreenPal, and and now GreenPal is a ten-year overnight success. We're we're, na- <laughs> we're nationwide in the United States. Uh, around three hundred thousand people using this app to get lawn mowing services done. So talk to me about those early days. The the you've got the idea, you get some co-founders together to start working on it. But but it's you're actually in the marketplace space. So so you've got to kick off both sides of it. Oh, and write the app. Tell yeah. me a little bit about those sort of early challenges and how you got over them. Well, the first challenge is a series, you know, it's like it's almost like a video game. Every level has its own final boss and you're just trying to get through one level at a time. So the first challenge was none of us knew how to code. None of us knew how to build software. So we thought all we had to do was pay a development shop to build what GreenPal should be. Then we would market it and be off and going. And so we did that and we wasted a year, eh, maybe 10 months and all of our money on paying a development agency to build GreenPal. And and we launched it, and it was like, if you build it, they will not come. It was just crickets, dead on arrival. It didn't have the features it needed. It was buggy. It was hard to use. And so we were confronted with the reality of if we were going to try to form a rock band here, we had to learn how to become musicians. Like, you know, we, if we were going to try to be a tech uh, startup, we were going to have to learn how to write software. And so we, my two co-founders and I went to YouTube University, took every online course we could get our hands on, 
Uh, my co-founder went to an actual like software boot camp that was like eight hours a day. And, and over the course of a year, maybe two, we learned just enough to be dangerous, just enough to hack together the next version of the, of the app and, and re-release it. And then we had something we could iterate on top of, something we could just improve little by little. And we started very, very small uh, recruiting buyers and sellers to the marketplace. We started off in just in Nashville, Tennessee, and spent three years in Nashville tinkering with supply and demand and how do you recruit vendors and how do you recruit homeowners and then listening to what they would tell us and improving the platform just one step at a time. And after we got about 100 to 200 people using it regularly and, and continuing to use it, then we started to develop a, a rollout strategy to, to move it into other cities. But we spent a long time perfecting it, nailing it, and then we decided to scale it. And at, at what point did you sort of move from what it sounds like a little bit of kind of gut feel and talking to data? And, and how is the, the data, you know, how, how are you driven by data now? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, you know, in the early days, it is all intuition. You're, you're really shooting from the hip. You're, you're going on your own assumptions. But the sooner you can start to uh, accumulate customer feedback, the better, and, and the actual user feedback. So no, no new business idea survives first touch with the customer. And that's kind of how it was for us. And, and even though we had no data, I could get five data points, 10 data points, and, and, and let that guide my decision-making. So in the early days, it was uh, data-driven. It was just the data was very, very small. A handful of users Every single user had my cell phone number. Uh, every user had my email address. And, and I would talk to them seven days a week on where the app was buggy, where it was confusing. And we used that little trickle of data to make better decisions because there was a lot of assumptions I had that were just flat out wrong. They weren't the right assumptions. And so it was five or six people telling us, no, look, this, this is disappointing. I wish you would fix this. And so we let that data kind of guide decision making, however small. And then as time went on, you know, 10 people turn into 100, 100 turns into 1,000, and so on, to where now we, we, don't, we don't really try to make decisions based on opinions. We try to make decisions, okay, well, this is going to be real easy. What is the data saying? You know, let's run a, a quick A-B test. Let's, let's take a look at how the user our users are behaving with these new treatments and experiments, and let's let the data speak. And it's taken us a decade to get there, but in the early days, it was very qualitative. <laughs> and uh, I think where a lot of founders... Uh, screw up is they skip that phase. They want to go straight to the scaled up data phase. And and the fact of the matter is, is you need to kind of get belly to belly with your early uh, customers and let that small bits of data guide your decision making. So talk to me a little bit about the dynamics of a marketplace because you're actually, you know, you've, you've got both sides of that. And marketplaces are super interesting for those of us in IT services right now because we're considering the way SaaS software is consumed and we, we're kind of in the middle a little bit between vendors and consumers. And so I, I thought it'd be really interesting to understand your experience on dealing with both sides of that because you've got, you know, two sides of a marketplace. What goes on in terms of building that marketplace, getting balanced, listening to both sides? Tell me a little bit about your marketplace. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's challenging. It's like uh, it's like four dimensional chess almost, where where you can't just make one change and expect an outcome. It, like like in SaaS, it's it's linear. You can you can kind of figure, okay, we've got a funnel here, and we're trying to drive people through the product. Marketplaces really aren't like that. If you make one change over here. 
it won't pop up as to what the effects were maybe until a year later over here. And it, and it, you're really more like a farmer where you're just kind of cultivating different parts of the field and trying to figure out what, what's working, what's taking hold, and what's not. So that's one reason why they take a really long time to figure out and to get going. But that's what makes them durable. If you get that supply and demand lock-in, that, that little network, it makes them defensible against other people trying to copy what you're doing. So what makes it hard makes it valuable. And a lot of times you as the arbiter of the marketplace, you're kind of the judge and jury on, on what is acceptable and what's not. You're, you're almost having to arbitrate uh, what behavior you're going to allow on the platform and what are the rules for, for the buyers and sellers on the platform. And sometimes you don't always get it right. U- Uber famously got this wrong in, in, in the early four or five years where they had surge pricing and people hated it. And from a clean economic standpoint, that was the right way to handle it. But from a customer experience standpoint, it was the wrong way to handle it. So we're all the time experimenting and making, making choices and having to revert back and, and figuring out what the right balance is between buyers and sellers. And it's never done. It's, it's always something you're improving and you're listening to customers on how to make it better. So if I could loan you the DeLorean and you could go back in time to those early days and tell yourself something about that early experience in developing the marketplace, what, what advice would you give to your earlier self? Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard. First thing, um, you know, we, we self-funded the business and, and, uh, and haven't raised any outside capital. And, and so the first thing I would do is I, if I was in the DeLorean, as I would raise money because I now know the roadmap and, and I can move a lot quicker. Uh, so I'm not sure if I, if, if, if I had to do it all over again, not knowing that I would, I would bootstrap it, but that's an interesting thing that I sometimes grapple with. The second thing I would tell myself is, is that you really do have two customers. Uh, you've got consumers. You know, most people think about the person bringing out the, the wallet is, is the customer. And the reality is, is you've got two, you know, in a marketplace, you've got two customers. You've got the suppliers and you've got the sellers and, and you have a value proposition for each one. And the value proposition is, you know, if I'm your ideal prospect, why am I going to use your product over anything else? And, and, and the answer always answers with because, because this is the easiest way to get your lawn mowed, even if it's four feet tall, or this is the easiest way to grow your lawn care business to a hundred customers with no marketing. And, and you have to be the best in the market at whatever that is to get people to use your thing. It really does have to be 10 times better than the status quo for people to switch to it. This is kind of why we're seeing, you know, like, like Instagram launched threads had the, the greatest distribution advantage in the history of technology. And, and now I think threads is pretty much done. It's, it's threads is not 10 times better than Twitter. It might be a little better. And so your new product has to be 10 times better. Your marketplace has to be 10 times better than the status quo for buyers and sellers or else it'll, it'll never take off. It's interesting. You bring up threads. I, I'm, I think the, the jury's still out, but we'll see. Hopefully. I'm rooting. <laughs> I'm rooting for I'm him, definitely man. For him too. <laughs> but, but the other thing I wanted to ask you about in the dynamics of a micro marketplace that, that kind of fascinates me is how you think about pricing. Because you've got to balance three parties' interests in when you're balancing this, right? Because you've got to deal with consumers who want the lowest price. You want your your provide you know the providers who want the highest price, and you in the middle who've got to figure out a way to make money on the transaction. How do you approach pricing and thinking about the way you're going to set your rates? Yeah, it's it's interesting because. In a marketplace like ours, in a very humble corner of the economy, lawn mowing, we kind of have a fluid, dynamic marketplace where we know that 
$37 is the spot price for what that lawn is worth to be mowed on that day because we, because people bid on on suppliers bid on the, on the on the request. And so um it, it's it's like you on the one hand you want to think okay well the market forces will just take care of themselves and and buyers and sellers will determine the pricing so just let it take care of itself. But on the other hand you as the 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 arbiter of the marketplace can influence and kind of guide decisioning around what kind of pricing gets submitted and what kind of what kind of pricing actually converts. And in the early days, we thought that it was our job to deliver the cheapest way to get lawn mowing because I had the contractor background. I had I had been in the business for 15 years, and you kind of develop this psyche that that consumers just want the cheapest price. And so that was our first like value proposition: was this is the cheapest way to get lawn mowing. And then after we started talking to customers, they would tell us, well, not, not really. I don't really care to save $5. I really just want the guy to show up on Thursday. Like he, I re, he really just needs to be there. And so then that we began to reorient the entire value proposition of the platform from the cheapest solution to the, the fastest and most reliable solution. And so we began promoting contractors based on speed and reliability and not conversion and price. And as we did that, we slowly began to reward uh, reliable behavior on the platform, and less so the cheapest pricing on the platform. And then, and then we would develop little little workflows and tools like, hey, you know, you're quoting forty two dollars and three seven one three zero. You're you're ten dollars cheaper than the average. You might want to consider raising your price a little bit because ultimately, our platform depends on one thing: making vendors more money. How do we make them more money with less hassle? And and so we're always looking for ways for them to expand margin. And so. It's something that we, we started off with one set of assumptions, and after talking to users and customers, we, we kind of changed course and figured out the right balance. The other thing you brought up over the course of this is you talked a lot about doing test, like A-B testing and, and doing comparisons. Give us a little bit of an insight into how much testing and trial is going on at any given moment in your marketplace. Yeah, we've got around 300,000 people using the app. And so at any given time, we're running between 10 and 20 different tests. And, and we try not to run testing at the same step of the customer journey or same, same step of the funnel. So we'll have a test around uh, ad copy inside of an AdWords ad or subject lines inside of a, a re-engagement email or something like that around, around top of the funnel. And then we'll move down the funnel around acquisition and activation and then retention and referral. And then we'll try to just do little tests. It's a simple test with, with, a, with a hypothesis of what do we think is going to happen? Why do we think it's going to be that way? Why, what does it tell us about our customer? And, and trying to close that gap between our company's kind of uh, perspective and our customer's perspective, the, the, the founder logic and the customer logic. There's always a gap there. And, and one way to close that gap is by, is by testing figure out, well, no, actually, uh, if we order the bids from, from, highest, from cheapest to, to highest, that doesn't convert as well as if we order them from the best rated to, to, to lowest rated and so on. And, and I've learned a lot from, from other marketplace practitioners, particularly Airbnb, about how they think about testing, how they craft different tests and what they're, what they're trying to do, what they're trying to learn. It's not always about just raising conversion. It's, it's really about trying to figure out What's going on inside of that like thought sequence of your user of your customer? The testing helps close that gap. So what's next? What do you what, what are, what's uh, coming in the future? 
I'm having a ball running this company. Uh, you know, I think I'll continue to do it so long as I'm having fun doing it. Uh, or, or if I'm, if I'm, if I'm bad at it, you know, if I'm good at it, I'll continue to do it. If I start to suck at it, then we'll, we'll bring in a professional CEO, but, but I'm having fun. You know, I want to get us to a million, million users strong. I think that'll put us in the same, uh, conversation as an Instacart, as a DoorDash, uh, maybe as an Uber. Uh, we're still not a household name yet. So, uh, getting somehow figuring how to get from 300,000 people using it to a million, that's what's next for us. Well, if people are interested in trying it, how can they do that? And are you in, and what markets are you in? Every city in the United States, any, any city over 20,000, uh, people can use GreenPal to get a lawn mowing service. So just go to greenpal.com and, uh, try it out. It's free. It's free to sign up. Free quotes. Brian, thanks for joining me and teaching us a lot about marketplaces today. Thanks, Dave. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I enjoyed it. The Business of Tech is written and produced by me, Dave Sobel, under ethics guidelines posted at businessof.tech. Like the content? Support the show at patreon.com slash mspradio or buy our Why Do We Care merch at businessof.tech. If you want to reach our listeners, visit mspradio.com slash engage. Part of the MSP Radio Network.